0: This is AM Rush Sports. I'm your host Alex Mitchell. We're talking with AM New York Metro Sports Editor Joe Pantorno about an exclusive story he has about the Islanders Arena being developed at Belmont Park. While we're on the topic of Belmont Park we're also going to talk about how the Belmont Stakes horse race is going to be different this year. For the first time in its 152-year history, it's going to be the first leg of the Triple Crown. Crazy to think about, but that's how it's going down. After that, we're going to talk about the greatest games ever played between two New York teams. That also involves a couple of hockey teams. Joe, we're going to go to you now. Joe, lots of big news coming out of Belmont Park this week. Tell me about it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, not often we get to talk about Belmont Park in uh, the major sporting world, but uh, we found out yesterday that the Belmont Stakes, which is normally the third jewel of horse racing's triple crown, is being moved to June 20th. And uh, for the first time ever in its 152 year history, it's going to be the leadoff event. ...of the Triple Crown, which obviously consists of the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. Both of those races were moved to September and October, respectively. So, yeah, the the Belmont States has the rare distinction of kicking things off this year. Uh, um, A couple of tweaks to the race. Instead of it being a mile and a half, it's going to be one and one-eighths miles. Um, The purse, which was 1.5 million last year... Is only going to be a million this year. And that's obviously a byproduct of everything that's happened in terms of lost revenue due to the coronavirus. And uh, as is the theme with most major sports returning, there will be no fans in attendance, which, uh, if you've ever been to the Belmont Stakes, um, it is absolutely electric, just uh, an overwhelming amount of people, a sea of humanity, if you'd say. Um, Uh, So there will be a huge factor obviously missing in that. It takes away from the uh, entire experience. But, hey, at least we have something uh, big, uh, especially in New York here. That's going to be the first big New York sporting event. So uh, a nice way to kind of kick things off and provide a semblance of normalcy.
0: You're so right about that. And uh, Belmont Park, it's in Nassau County. You've been there a few times. I've been there a few times. I would say, in my humble opinion, I think you get one of the best and most energetic tailgates at the Belmont Stakes. That will be sorely missed, but I'm sure there will be some sort of virtual tailgating, and I'm sure you could still place bets virtually on that. I'm, I'm sure they're going to find a way to do that. But, yeah, like you said, it is a light at the end of the tunnel. I've been using that because that's... It feels like we've been in in just darkness, and finally we're seeing peaks and cracks of light. Baseball is working on a plan, as we've discussed. Hockey is working on a plan, and I know Governor Cuomo has been fully on board with finding a way for New York teams, and not just teams, but horse racing, other sporting events, to happen safely. Like you're saying, it looks like there won't be fans, but I think that... To have the Belmont Stakes, that is going to be a huge moment of encouragement. Now, of course, like you said, it's different this year since the Triple Crown begins with it, but normally with Belmont, if you have a legendary horse such as American Pharaoh or Secretariat, that is where the, the Triple Crown was actually crowned at the end of the race. So that'll be strange to not had the prospect of witnessing that this year, but it's also cool in a way because you get to see almost the Kentucky Derby in New York because of the track, because of the difference in the track lane.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And, uh, really it'll be America's first opportunity to be introduced to the, uh, crop of contestants that'll be gunning for the triple crown this year. And, uh, yeah, instead of, uh, saying they won the triple crown at Belmont, we can say that we saw possibly the beginning of a, uh, triple crown exploration. So, uh, you know, I think uh, the country could definitely use a triple crown pursuit. Uh, I won't, you know, I don't want to be greedy and say the country needs a triple crown winner, but, uh, just to kind of build up that excitement that much more, uh, that's going to provide a nice little punch to the full sports schedule, which is already getting pretty crowded in terms of tennis and golf and, uh, you know, hopefully baseball will be back by then. And who knows, maybe we'll have the, uh, um, the end of the NHL and NBA playoffs uh, if, if things go well. So, fingers crossed.
0: So, speaking of hockey, there's some other news going on at Belmont Park that you had an exclusive beat on.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, a source told me over the weekend that uh, on-site construction of the New York Islanders' new arena at Belmont Park is on the horizon. Uh, They're waiting to get the green light for uh, the phase one of reopening for New York. Um, There are four or five regions around the state, and they're all upstate, uh, that have been able to open uh, under those phase one regulations, which includes outdoor construction. Um, So Governor Andrew Cuomo's plan uh, to facilitate that opening is that there are seven steps that need to be met. And um, as of Sunday, New York had five of those seven met. Uh, As soon as all seven of them are hit, outdoor construction will be able to continue and thus we will have the continuation of the Belmont Arena, which is scheduled to open in October of 2021. Now, unfortunately, um, the Islanders and Sterling Development Um, they weren't able to get back to me on if the arena is still on schedule. Um, Back in late March, Richard Brown, who's the managing partner of Sterling, said that it will remain on schedule as long as there isn't a lengthy delay. Um, It's been two months, so uh, I guess it remains to be seen if that's lengthy enough to push things back. But, uh, you know, at least kind of from what I'm hearing, um, there doesn't seem to be too much panic surrounding it. So uh, if I were to guess... I would say that things are still on schedule, but in the meantime, while there hasn't been on-site construction, um, there have been uh, contractors and uh, off-site prefabrication work being done, so at least we've been able to find out and kind of break the news that the project wasn't completely sedentary during the thick of the coronavirus freeze, Um, so hopefully they can kind of hit the ground running and still be on target for that October uh, 2021 opening.
0: That would be very exciting. I know, just as you know, this is something Islander fans have long awaited. It was very, I don't even want to say bittersweet because there wasn't much sweetness when the Islanders left the Nassau Coliseum for Brooklyn in 2015 and then co-sharing the venue with Barclays Center and the Coliseum, you know, the, the team felt very nomadic and to have a commitment not just as I mentioned before, not just in New York, but back in Nassau County, the original home for the New York Islanders and what 10 out of 10 fans will tell you should be the only home for the New York Islanders. Having that arena is definitely a morale booster and one big loose end tied up on a franchise that has had more than a couple of woes over the past few decades. And I think you can certainly attest to that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think the cherry on top of all of this is that it is a top class hockey facility built just for them. And it is something that really, since the late eighties, early nineties, the team has been looking for. Um, And, for those listening if, if you've never been to Barclays Center I'll I'll try and sum it up as easy, you know as simple as possible the Barclays Center is a beautiful first-rate arena for basketball it was built for the Brooklyn Nets it is perfect for them i've covered my fair share of nets games over the years and the experience is fantastic now for as great as it is for basketball it is as bad for hockey when it comes to obstructed view seats Uh, media amenities, uh, just the general layout of the arena. It's just, it's not built for hockey. And, um, you know, you will find plenty more Islanders fans who dislike the Barclays Center than liked it. Um, And as much as it has been bashed over the years, um, I think Islanders fans have to be thankful for it because without the Barclays Center, who knows where the team would be right now. They could have been relocated uh, after they were kicked out of the, coliseum in 2015 so um you know as testy as the stay was for those four or five years uh there does have to be a bit of gratitude that comes with it and uh you know it's just uh, a turbulent period that islanders fans can kind of look back on now with all eyes on belmont and luckily for the time being all of their home games from now until the opening there uh it will be at nassau coliseum so Um, It's going to be a great way to kind of build up everything uh, leading into that new venue. So uh, exciting times for the organization.
0: So a point that I want to make about, and you're certainly right that beggars can't be choosers and Brooklyn is better than somewhere like Kansas City, Quebec, another very foreign territory to New York Islanders fans, which would probably make the team lose its namesake and pretty much everything else. So in that sense, you're so right. Brooklyn was the better of the two. Again, I know, you know, this fans felt like they were not being treated as they were in the Coliseum. When you have the CEO of the Barkley center, advise people with obstructed view seats to watch the game on your phone. It really makes you feel like you are playing second class to the Brooklyn nets. But again, Water under the bridge, it was a turbulent time, and it seems like something much better is coming out of it. And a point that I want to make with a team out West, which in a lot of ways has mirrored the New York Islanders franchise both in when they were highly prominent, very successful, and when they ran into similar stadium issues, not as dramatic because, as you know with the New York Islanders, it's very difficult to... Be anything more dramatic than what that franchise can chalk up. Um, The Edmonton Oilers, a few years ago, when they switched from Rexall Place to Rogers Place, this was around the time that Edmonton was heating up. It's when Connor McDavid was not just coming into the league, but really coming into his own, leading Edmonton back to the playoffs. I remember seeing that arena on TV and I was just thinking, this is what the Islanders should have done. This was the direction they should have went in. And if you haven't seen what the Oilers' new arena, or at the time, like 2016, arena looked like, it looked like what Barkley Center would have been like had it been constructed, converted for hockey. It was like almost, they saw what the Isles did and said, this is great if we make the arena more suited for our sport, and when you look at the renderings of what the new New York Islanders venue is going to be, it re- it awfully resembles what the Oilers are doing, and I think that that is going to be a slam dunk, and I bet that that place is going to be really, really ruckus during the playoffs.
1: Yeah, and um, what was great about this entire project is that the architects kept in mind when they were designing this new Belmont arena is that they wanted to try and keep the heart and soul of what made the Coliseum great. So while this new Belmont park is going to be, you know, grand with the brick and kind of Ivy facade that'll match though, the horse racing track, um, you know you're gonna walk in and it's gonna feel a lot like the coliseum not in terms of the uh, amenities say for uh, you know in the walkways for the fans but when you get in there the ceiling is going to be low um it's going to be an intimate feeling um and i think that's what's going to be really the um the premium attraction um for, for islanders fans and uh, obviously for hockey fans everywhere because uh you know, I've, I've covered Islanders games uh, probably for the last four or five years now. And um, often I am sitting with the visiting team's media. And I'd say maybe uh, seven times out of ten, uh, they come in and they'll tell me, uh, you know what, It's the amenities for media aren't great, it's a little cramped up in the press box, um, but you will never find a more raucous atmosphere when the team is good, and you will never find a better view for a game. Um, And I think that's something that obviously a lot of fans and media members should expect for the new arena. And, uh, you know, now that everything around it is kind of spruced up and in a new location, um, all of a sudden the Islanders become a franchise that maybe a lot of guys didn't want to go to, say, in free agency or stay with, and I won't mention names, Um, you know, it might be a, hotter destination, and uh, who knows, it might coincide with a new golden age for the organization, uh, which has been hard to come by since the dynasty days.
0: Well, we won't name names about what you're talking about, but uh, we can mention that uh, it involves the city of Toronto and the number 91 (laughs) and uh, what many fans and possibly players would call a snake. So 50 points for Slytherin, JT. Besides the point. <laughs> um, and again, you know, that ended on very bad terms. You know, it, it was like, it really felt like a breakup. It's not that you needed to go. It's how you left. That's what a lot of people were were thinking about that when you hear the we don't need you chance every time that said nameless player would return to the Coliseum, which... When the Islanders put a tribute video up for him, booze rained down from the fans, and the thing that doesn't bother me about it, and I think that the fans were a little hard, rightfully so, they they felt like they had something taken from them. And again, in the manner in which everything happened, it was blindsiding, there was a feeling of commitment, but at the same time, it's a new day, it's a new era. Not that the Islanders don't need this player, but the Islanders can suffice with what they have on the ice, if not more. And not commuting between two arenas, I think that that is just going to be the formal icing on the cake that a new, brighter day is coming to Nassau County. And I think in a lot of ways, Belmont's opening given that it is anticipated to be in 2021 when hopefully all will be said and done with coronavirus and almost every facet of normal life can resume. In a way, I think that a new arena really embodies a new day for New York.
1: Yeah, I really couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, you know, just to kind of touch back on your other point, um, you know, talking about I guess that player who won't be named in this case, Uh, you know, it seemed a lot like sour grapes. um, And, you know, I could see how a lot of hockey fans outside the area uh, thought that way. Um, But really it it was kind of the summation of years of frustration uh, to the point where, again, we touched on this, where the Islanders have felt like second class citizens, not only um, in the NHL, um, but even In their own area, Uh, you know, however you want to put it, regardless of success, the Islanders are perceived as the little brother to the Rangers in the area. And uh, you know, for years, I remember going to National Coliseum for Islanders-Rangers games, and there's more Rangers fans in attendance than than Islanders fans. Yeah. Um, And you know, being spurned uh, in free agency by so many players over the years, and uh, you know how previous managerial regimes kind of came in and gutted the franchise of uh, any link to its glory days and, you know, set the franchise back for basically decades. And, uh, you know, they're still trying to climb out of it at points. Um, you know, that uh, that night last year, that was uh, kind of the frustration boiling over. And it just, it was kind of unfortunate that they had to boo during uh, Number 91's tribute video. That was a little cringeworthy. Um, but... At the same time, you know, there's decades of frustration that the fan base has gone through, and uh, there really isn't a more loyal support system that deserves this. Um, So, yeah, I really, I I can't be more excited about it for them, Uh, you know, for my family members, for my dad, uh, you know, I I can't wait to see them uh, go and really enjoy this arena, and uh, yeah, hopefully it's you know, it's it's the start of a, a new golden age for the Islanders.
0: What's funny to think about is you owe what fans view as two eyesores or two extremely difficult and frustrating times in Islanders history to the, a point of success that hadn't been achieved in 23 years when... Number 91. All right, we'll just call him John Tavares at this point. Secrets <laughs> out if you didn't already know. When Tavares scores against Roberto Luongo and the Florida Panthers in Brooklyn to end the New York Islanders' 23-year playoff round-winning drought. They hadn't won a series since. David Volek put them over the two-time, two-time consecutive Stanley Cup champion winning Penguins in overtime of Game 7 in 1993. And then the next time the Islanders would do that was game six in 2016 when Tavares goes around the net. And I will be honest, the Coliseum is known for its boisterous behavior. The Barclays Center was rocking at that, that point in time. And I'm sure you could hear it down Flatbush Avenue and then some miles.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, at the time it kind of felt like an exercise of demons in a way. Uh, Because, you know, Tavares, who was the franchise savior, you know, scores that series winning goal, like you said, to end that drought against a goaltender who was supposed to be the next big thing for the Islanders, who was traded away prematurely by Mike Milbury um, to the Florida Panthers for, uh, you know, Mark Parrish and Ole Kavasha, who, you know, Parrish had a couple of productive years for the Islanders. But really, uh, it was one of the worst trades that a general manager who is known for making awful trades. Um, it was one of the worst that he ever made. Um, so again, it was one of those moments where I was like, Hey, you know what? Things are finally turning around. And, you know, that wasn't necessarily the case. And say it was delayed for a couple more years until John Ledecky and Scott Malkin came in and took over um, for Charles Wang, who really deserves all the credit for keeping the Islanders here in New York, Um, you know, that can't be stated enough. Um, But yeah, uh, Malkin and Ledecky come in, they bring in Lula Amorello, they bring in Barry Trotz, and now the foundation is set. So hopefully now, with that core, they go to Belmont and things begin to look up even more so.
0: I think that if the NHL is going to return this year, and all signs point to that, it looks like more teams will be making the playoffs than less. And that could poise something I think New York really needs right now, which is the prospect of a long-awaited Islanders-Rangers playoff series. We haven't had one of those since, what, 1994?
1: That is correct.
0: Oh, man, that would be something. I think that... The best way to unite New York right now is to divide them up again between (laughs) Islander and Ranger fans.
1: That would be, um, yeah, you know, the the rivalry has kind of been waking up, and I don't want to say it's been dormant, um, but obviously a rivalry is at its best when both teams are good. And given the Islanders' recent record over the past 20, 25 years, it has been rare when both teams have been good. The past few years, we've kind of seen that reawakening. Um, You know, the Rangers were kind of on that downside of, uh, you know, 13 playoff appearances in 12 years or so. And, uh, you know, the Islanders were kind of on their way up. Uh, 2016 was a great year, Um, you know, for the rivalry. I think that's what kind of helped wake things up for them. Um, And then, um, yeah, you know, the Rangers are – We're entering a rebuild and, uh, you know, things kind of got cooled down. But, you know, I think that Rangers rebuild was accelerated a lot quicker than uh, plenty of us thought. And, uh, you know, now that they're both in the conversation for the playoffs, not necessarily towards the top of the division, um, you know, it still means something. And the fact that uh, they're going to for postseason play, possibly at the same time in an expanded playoffs, uh, you never know. Um, especially coming back from a, a two-month freeze, really anything can happen. So, yeah, who knows? Maybe if uh, if the cards fall uh, in the right spots, we could see an Isles-Rangers rematch, which, oh boy, uh, you know, I, I kind of fear for both sets of fans because, uh, you know, I remember the last couple of games at the Coliseum uh, this year, the Isles-Rangers rivalry. It was, uh, it was intense, and I was glad I was sitting up in the press box just for uh, – you know, my safety's purpose.
0: (laughs) Oh man, there's, there's nothing like an Islanders Rangers game. I've never been to one at the garden. Unfortunately not, but I've been to them at the Nassau Coliseum. And as you said, the perception is that the Islanders are the Rangers, little brother, and there are tons of Rangers fans on long Island. I wouldn't say more, but they're certainly in high grossing numbers. Those games are something else. It's, oh, gosh. I And that brings me to my next point, the next thing that I want to discuss with you on this show, which is some of the greatest games played between New York teams. And I know that mine falls in the realm of hockey between the New York Islanders and Rangers. And because Mets are in the National League, Yankees are in the American League. They don't play too often. The Knicks and Nets haven't quite had anything too exciting between them. I mean, I remember in the first season where the Nets moved to Brooklyn, Jason Kidd, who was playing on the Knicks at the time, he hits a big three and one, and the Knicks take it over the Nets. That, I would say, is the most exciting moment between those two franchises, at least in the past 10 or so years, maybe even more, probably even more. Let's be honest, basketball's been a little bit dormant besides the Nets having a few short-term playoff runs, although when they played the Raptors, that was a really great end. It just, you wanted more from them as you do with all your teams. Uh, Giants and Jets, this is one that was one-sided, although Rex Ryan's big mouth certainly made it feel a little bit two-sided, and that was in... 2011, the year that the New York Giants won the Super Bowl, heading into the playoffs in December, the Giants were essentially, as you know, in a, a win-and-go-home, win-or-go-home, rather, phase, where their December games were essentially playoff games. If they had lost one more, there was, they had no shot at winning the NFC East and clinching a playoff spot. So Rex Ryan, as he's best at, certainly inflated the hype around a late-season Jets-Giants game where all that he had on the line, because the Jets were not in good standing for the playoffs, was the title of who runs New York. The Giants had a lot more to play for. Joe, I'm going to let you take it from here on this.
1: Yeah, so it's important to remember at the time that this was a Jets team that was coming off, uh, you know, Uh, an AFC championship appearance, you know, they were kind of on the cusp for a couple of years in 2009 and 2010. Um, And, you know, this was obviously before Rex Ryan kind of wore out as welcome here in New York, Um, 2011. That wasn't really the case. Um, Yeah. So they, uh, you know, they, they met in late December. I I, I think it was Christmas Eve or uh, maybe December 23rd. I'm I'm not really sure of the date, but kind of leading up to the game, Rex Ryan starts flapping his jaw, and he says something along the lines of, like, quite honestly, I, I never came here to be the little brother to anybody, and, uh, you know, I recognize they're a, a, a great football team, but I think we're better. Um, and, and he goes, you know, I know there's a lot of talking, but, you know, I, I'll stand by everything I've ever said. You know, I, I'm here to win. I'm here to, you know, to not only take over this city, but to take over this league um and and you know he provided some more bulletin board material and whatnot and um you know, really, I think what would have been the highlight to that Jets season is if they were to spoil the Giants playoff hopes um and uh you know we knew that the Giants were kind of battling for um a wild card spot um you know i'm I'm pretty sure they finished the season at nine and seven,
0: yes, they did
1: um so. You know, at that point, it was um, – I, I think it might have been week, what, 15 or 16 where they played the Jets? Um, I think it was week 16. I believe it was and, the second-to-last
0: um, game of the regular season because right before that, you had Jason Pierre-Paul, back when he had all of his fingers, tip the field goal against Dallas away. That was a good year. Continue. Yeah.
1: No, it was a great year. Yeah, so they – you know, they come in and, and they're 7-7. Seven and seven. Um, So, obviously – you know, they need to, uh, you know, get over 500 just to get into that conversation of staying in the wild card hunt. Um, and, you know, the Jets provided that perfect bulletin board material. And, um, you know, the uh, the Giants kind of dominated. Uh, you know, it was a slow start. Um, I think I, I remember the Jets scored the opening uh, touchdown in the first quarter. And then uh, the Giants kind of reeled off uh, – I think it might have been like uh twenty uh twenty unanswered points or or something like that. Um and and that was capped off by um a Victor Cruz ninety nine yard touchdown reception down the right sideline, uh off a little slant from Eli Manning. Um it gave the Giants a ten seven lead. They never looked back. Um and as they say the rest is history. They go on to win their second Super Bowl in four or five years against the Patriots and uh Yeah, that was, uh, you know, a a big assist to Rex Ryan, a big assist to the Jets, um, which, you know, that poor franchise really doesn't need any more distinctions of, uh, (laughs) you know, of uh, mediocrity. But, you know, unfortunately, that might be the case again.
0: A couple of things about that game that, of course, Rex Ryan did to just pour gasoline on a decently fierce fire he had already started – as you know, as almost every New Yorker and New Jerseyan, is it New Jerseyan? Yeah, that works. Sure. The Jets and Giants share MetLife Stadium, what once was Giants Stadium. The Jets were technically the home team for that game. And what that meant was stadiums decked out in green, music plays when the Jets score. Although it's the Giants' home, too, it's treated as an away game for the Giants which includes how the Giants left their locker room. And what Rex Ryan had instructed, or, I mean, I'm assuming it was Ryan, I don't know anyone else that would want to, ins- want to incentivize an, impo- an opponent to play better, but he covered up the Giants' Super Bowl trophies that the team passes on their way out to the field, making it feel like not only was it not their home, but that they were completely irrelevant. And I have to imagine, as Victor Cruz is walking past his covered Super Bowl trophies, I think that there's a little bit in his mind when he's catching that ball on the one or two yard line. You know, I want to be a moving middle finger past the Jets' sideline, and Rex Ryan sees me. And from that moment, that just took the life out of the New York Jets. And I know Brandon Jacobs was pretty peeved after the game. He had some pretty explicit words for... Rex Ryan, the more mild part being that he was a quote, big mouth, big belly coach. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh Tom Coughlin took the high road before the game. He just said talk is cheap, let's play. And that he did. You know, the Giants and Jets only get to play each other once every four years, so there aren't too many opportunities when there's a meaningful game. Of course they play in the preseason every year, but Nailed. That, pff, come on, it's preseason. So, to actually have a Jets Giants game where something was not just on the line, but everything was on the line for the Giants, I think that is the closest New York NFL rivalry we've seen in a good couple of decades. The only way that that would have been more exciting is if the Jets were also gunning for a possible trip back to the AFC championship that season. I think that would have been one of the best and worst Christmases for many fans in attendance.
1: Uh, yeah, you know, I, I definitely agree with you there. And, um, really what I, I, I think we kind of, you know, I, I kind of failed to remember, you know, 2011. Yeah. was a down season and, and the jets did wind up missing the playoffs, but, um, they they entered weeks week sixteen with an eight and seven record. Um, you know, they were second in the AFC East. They were still very much um in contention there. So um yeah, not only was there satisfaction where Brandon Jacobs and Victor Cruz got to kinda of shut Rex Ryan up, um, uh, but they also kinda of drove that final nail in the coffin of any sort of Jets playoff hopes. Um and, and obviously that, that gave Giants fans extra bragging rights. Um, you know, which it, it's kind of one sided. And uh, again, I, I, I really feel for Jets fans, um, you know, they, they're so comparable to the Mets in a way where, you know, they, they just are the little brother to their, uh, you know, their sit neighbors, um, you know, the Jets are to the Giants what the Mets are to the Yankees. And, uh, you know, that, that was a, a rare chance to kind of stick it to them. And, uh, you know, they couldn't, and, To add that insult to injury, the Giants went on to win the Super Bowl. So, um, yeah, you know, I'm sure this is not a conversation that Jets fans want to be hearing right now. So uh, I I will apologize.
0: Well, it's not worse than the butt fumble. Actually, no, I would put that above the butt fumble because the stakes were higher and it just felt a little bit more personal. And, you know, coming from the Giants' perspective, that made the Super Super Bowl run all but sweeter. You have to beat the Jets. You have to beat the Cowboys. And then eventually you go down the line and you have to beat Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, and the New England Patriots. You know, it just felt like you had to just check off. You had to exercise all the demons. You had to to bump them off one at a time. And I would like to see something like that again where both teams are poised for playoff success. I remember in 2014 when the super bowl was held at metlife there was all the preseason speculation oh it's going to be a jets giants super bowl well hopefully down the line we do get a real jets giants super bowl that'd be pretty darn awesome and i think i think that that would wake up football in new york
1: yeah that would take uh well that that would actually create a legitimate rivalry between the two teams because again Um, I I think the rivalry between the Giants and Jets is, is non-existent. Um, I really don't think there's anything, um, anything close to a rivalry on the field. It exists in the stands between the fans who have nothing to do, but bark at each other. Um, But yeah, you know, the next time the Giants and the Jets play, I think is 2023. Uh, So hopefully both teams kind of can rebuild around, you know, their, their young pieces and, you know, particularly their young quarterbacks and, you know, who knows? Maybe in uh, in a couple of years we'll see, uh, you know, another big Giants Jets game that matters late in the season with postseason ramifications. And who knows? Maybe it will be a Super Bowl appetizer. You know, I I certainly hope so.
0: Now moving over to baseball, when we talk about the greatest rivalries within New York, that is not limited to both the Yankees and the Mets, although. I think it's universal that the height of the Mets-Yankees rivalry came in the 2000 World Series, a, an actual Subway Series. And as you know, not to damper the point or damper that of Mets fans and remind you, uh, Yankees took that one, I believe, in five games. Derek Jeter with his leadoff home run. Again, that was kind of like... What Victor Cruz did with the 99-yard touchdown. You know, you almost beat them before the game really begins. And we don't need to go too much into 2000. I was a young kid. You were a little bit older than me. What do you remember about the speculation heading into the World Series?
1: Well, I, I got to be honest. I was um, I was eight years old during the 2000 World Series. So I was in uh, – I think I was in third grade. And um, I – was in a very loving, amazing household that put my education and my schoolwork first. And at the time, when I was eight, I had a very strict bedtime of 8.30.
0: Oh, no. Oh,
1: yes. <laughs> oh, yes. And, uh, you know, so I really wasn't able to watch a ton of the World Series. Uh, I would actually stay up late and kind of have it on my radio while I was going to bed. Uh, So, uh, you know, thank goodness for the radio. And, uh, again, for all those new school kids, uh, do yourself a favor when baseball returns, go outside in your backyard uh, or go up in your room, open your windows on a summer night, listen to a baseball game on a radio. It's a religious experience. But besides the point, (laughs) um, I I do remember going, uh, you know, kind of heading into the World Series, Um, I mean, you know, the Yankees were – they were a dynasty at the time. Uh, You know, they won the World Series in 96, they won in 98, uh, they won in 99, and, um, you know, they were certainly the favorites. Uh, You know, they kind of had the star power. You know, the Mets had – you know, the Mets had this core of uh, – you know, it wasn't necessarily just overwhelming knock-your-socks-off-power. The Mets had a good team. It was obviously centered around Mike Piazza. They had decent enough pitching. Um, but again, you know, you put the two teams down on paper, and it's kind of one of those obvious, like, advantage Yankees. But, you know, there were opportunities for the Mets to make statements in that series, particularly when Armando Benitez blew game one. Um know that unfortunately kind of set the tone and uh you know the Yankees took advantage and that's what good teams do uh you know when a team leaves the door open you go in and you kick it down and uh you know that's kind of really what I remember uh the Yankees doing throughout that series and um you know there are obviously older fans who kind of have a better grip on the whole situation but uh yeah that was uh the only time you could really say there was a Mets-Yankees rivalry and um, you know, it's been inflamed at times due to interleague play, which I am not a fan of. Um, you know, I think it uh, kind of almost takes away from the World Series. There's something great about, you know, the American League and the National League playing each other, you know, once during the All-Star Game and then, you know, the winners of both leagues meet in the World Series and that's it. Um, you know, I I kind of like the premise of what uh, the two New York teams did prior to interleague play, um, you know, particularly in the sixties and seventies, they had the mayor's cup. Uh, It was a preseason game. You know, you play for a trophy, you know, New York fans can kind of get out there. You know, it's kind of like what the Snoopy bowl is right now, uh, you know, with the giants and jets. That's kind of what it was for the Mets and Yankees. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you know, the rivalry is kind of a non-starter for me, you know, they meet up once a year in the regular season bunch of fans yell at each other back and forth, uh, you know, who has 27 World Series, who buys their championships, uh, you know, who's been in last <laughs> place for a majority of, uh, you know, the last 15 years. It's it's pretty tiresome. But, you know, if we get another Mets Yankees World Series, then hey, maybe the rivalry comes back. But, uh, you know, when when we talk about baseball rivalries in new york um you know the first thing that comes to my mind is not Mets to the yankees
0: so tell me who is uh
1: well you know i think uh it, it sort of depends on the era um you know if you look back at the early 1900s uh, the yankees and the giants met each other three or four times um in the early 1920s and then uh, in the 1940s and 50s um you know, it was Yankees-Dodgers. Um, you know, it was 1947, 1949. Um, and, and you'll have to forgive me here. I'm kind of going off the top of my head. Um, it was 47, 49. Actually, well, they played in 1941, too. So it was 41, 47. Then they played each other again in 49. 1952, 1953, 1955, 1956. So, you know, you do the math there, it's, uh, you know, six or seven times they played each other in the World Series in a 15-year stretch.
0: And the Um, the interim year, 1954, with that, also featured some really great New York baseball from another now Californian team, the New York, at the time, New York Giants with Bobby Thompson shot heard around the world against the Brooklyn Dodgers. Please continue.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So, right, the Thompson shot heard around the world. That was in 51, um, and they went on to lose the World Series to, guess who, the Yankees. Um, And then in 54, um, you know, the Giants were able to kind of get past the Dodgers again. Um, And luckily for National League Baseball in New York, they didn't have to face the Yankees. Uh, They played the Cleveland Indians. They won the World Series. They actually swept them. Um, and that was the infamous world series of Willie Mays over the shoulder catch against Vic Wertz uh, out in center field in the polo grounds. Um, so yeah, if, if you really talk about baseball rivalries in New York, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, I'm probably in the minority, especially for kids in my age group. Um, and, and again, I use the, the term kids nicely because I'm, I'm actually staring down the barrel of 30 and it's making me uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, uh, that is, um, you know, that was a, a golden era in New York baseball that provided so many, uh, fantastic games and amazing moments, um, where, you know, you could just spend hours, uh, kind of learning about it. And, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I would kind of goad on anybody if they have the opportunity to, you know, just do a little bit of research. Baseball is just, uh, it's a lot of fun to learn about man when you look back at those uh at those old seasons and stuff i mean i just i love old-time baseball um you know as flawed as it was uh in terms of including um you know half of the nation's population um you know it's uh i don't know it always holds kind of a special place in my heart um just kind of learning about all that old stuff and Um, Really, what kind of fueled my love of it was the Brooklyn Dodgers and kind of learning about their rivalry with the Yankees in those World Series.
0: You know, Joe, I hope one night you are watching an episode of Jeopardy and you just see a big ping old-time baseball category come up in double Jeopardy. I am so curious to see how you would do with that. Oh,
1: God, I would like to think I would dominate because I think I kind of like built this reputation growing up or like I was that kid who was a fountain of useless information. In fact, like that was like the nickname one of my English teachers gave me. And, and thankfully I kind of translated it into a career in sports uh, and I'm very thankful for it. So I'd like to think that it all paid off.
0: You know, I'm like you knowing everything about nothing is awesome. <laughs> right. Like we get like, you know, we are
1: experts at something or we're kind of experts amongst our, you know, our, our little group of, of, of readers and friends and family and stuff like that. So it is a nice reputation to have. Um, but that being said, I don't, I, I think I would crack under the pressure in jeopardy. Like I need to really? have my mind in a, in a calm state. Once I get put under pressure, who knows what happens.
0: I see you not just winning the category, but also writing into the judges to explain a more clear answer.
1: <laughs> now, you know what? I, I'd like to think I would be that good under the gun like that. So I I do appreciate the confidence.
0: You know, I like to think, and I think you're like this too. My mental database consists, well, it consists of more than this, but the three S's, sports, Star Wars, and SpongeBob. I think that that is (laughs) the three things that you put me in any conversation. I can pull a reference from each one that would be sensible. I mean,
1: everybody loves it. Everybody loves SpongeBob. Everybody loves Star Wars. Everybody loves sports. So, I mean, you're, you you will be the life at parties.
0: Exactly. And proud to say I have been It's sometimes too much, but in a good way. Now, of let's talk about what I believe to be the greatest game played between two New York teams, and it happened at the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum on Long Island in 1984 in a playoff game, a decisive playoff game, between the New York Islanders and the New York Rangers. Joe, you want to take it from here?
1: Uh, yeah, so you know how we were just talking about uh, the Jets having an opportunity to sort of dethrone little brother? Well, Game 5 of uh, you know this 1984 playoff series was 100 times that situation because the Rangers had an opportunity to knock off the three-time defending Stanley Cup champion New York Islanders uh and and dethrone them and um you know that was kind of uh well I, I shouldn't excuse me four time I'm I'm very sorry
0: I was going four to address that Stanley but yeah yeah
1: um uh and and uh, you know end their run of domination um and it looked like they kind of had an opportunity to do so. Uh, you know, they actually had a two-to-one series lead. Um, they took game three at the Garden. It was like seven to two. Um, and at the time, this was a best-of-five series, so the first two, three wins takes the cake. Um, you know, they, they take a two-to-one series lead. Uh, the Islanders, they win game four, four-to-one uh, at the Garden. No easy task, obviously. Forces a game five at the Coliseum. And, uh, yeah, it's as tense as a winner-take-all big playoff series would be. Um, you know, Ron Greshner scores the first for the Rangers in the first. Um, it's followed up like seven minutes later by Mike Bossie. Um It's all tied up. And nobody scores until the third period. Uh, Thomas Johnson scores about eight minutes in. The Islanders are basically playing the equivalent of pre-event defense. The Rangers are bombarding the Islanders. And uh, with 39 seconds left in the third period, uh, Don Maloney scores the controversial equalizer. Uh, You know, the puck's tipped up in the air. It looks like a high stick. Uh, You know, he bats it down. It might be above the crossbar. Uh, It looks like it from a lot of angles. Uh, He bats it down into the net. Uh, The Islanders protest saying it was a high stick the referees say uh, no it wasn't and uh, yeah so to add more drama to an Islanders Rangers abhorrent rivalry uh, a winner-take-all game five in a playoff series to dethrone the four-time defending Stanley Cup champions uh, goes to overtime
0: now before you say anything else remember what I was saying about Spongebob before
1: yes overtime
0: continue (laughs)
1: That, that that actually couldn't have been placed perfectly. Um, <laughs> any more perfect. That was awesome. Uh, um, and, yeah, I mean, overtime uh, became one of the crowning moments of Kenny Morrow's career. Uh, the stay-at-home defenseman who was a stalwart of the Stanley Cup teams who did not score in the regular season always found a way to come up with the big goal. And he somehow found a way to come up with the big goal in the biggest situation where, you know, just kind of a wheeling slapper from the right, uh, you know, the right point finds a way in. And, uh, you know, that's probably the biggest goal of his career, which is saying a lot for a guy that played on the 1980 U.S. gold medal team who played on four straight Stanley Cup winners who, you know, scored an empty netter uh, to complete the sweep of the Edmonton Oilers the year before. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was, uh, you know, you kind of bring that up around him cause he's still around the Islanders, uh, you know, working in their front offices. Um, you know, it, it's brought up a lot and, uh, you know, you see the guy just kind of grinning like a kid. Um, so it's obviously a special moment for him. Uh, it's a incredibly special moment for Islanders fans. Uh, You know, when you talk about the rivalry against the Rangers, it's one of those moments that they're able to kind of hold over Ranger fans' heads. Um, And it is a benchmark moment, not only in the rivalry, but um, in New York sports history that, uh, you know, I certainly think should get a little bit more credit. But, you know, at the end of the day, it is hockey. And uh, we all know how hockey tends to take a backseat to baseball, football, and basketball.
0: Well, Joe, that's why we now have a sports show.
1: That's right. We're, we're highlighting the little guys.
0: Speaking of highlighting something about not just Kenny Morrow and his career, but also about the 1984 Rangers, as you mentioned, he played on the Miracle on Ice team, which was coached by Herb Brooks and assisted by Craig Patrick, Right. Who we're in charge of the New York Rangers in 1984. Herb Brooks was the coach. He brought Craig Patrick along with him, and who else but his former, his former player Kenny Morrow scores on Herb Brooks. The, I don't know. Would you say that Brooks might be the most legendary American coach in all of hockey?
1: Uh, yeah, no, hundred um, percent. And just to add on that, it's worth <laughs> noting that the Rangers' leading point-getter in 1983-84 was Kenny Morrow's teammate in the Olympics, Mark Pavlich. 29 goals, 53 assists for 82 points for those New York Rangers. Um, So just another little added rivalry within that 1980 U.S. team uh, on that night at Nassau Coliseum.
0: So It's so wild how things like that come full circle. And... Neither of us were alive for the game. Before we got into our little segment, I actually rewatched the overtime. And the Islanders were the more aggressive team as far as shooting goes in overtime. I mean, Mike Bossy, he was out there like a machine gun. Just every time he touched the puck, he was putting it on net no matter where he was on the ice. But there was a shot at the beginning of overtime that the Rangers put on Billy Smith where everybody rushes the crease and the puck is open, it's behind Smith, it has not crossed the line, or it's adjacent to Smith, if not behind him, has not crossed the line, and it's one of those moments where everyone can see it on the cameras, but the players don't know where the puck is. I can only imagine what looking at that live must have felt like to be that close, the Rangers for a brief moment with two guys literally crashing into the goaltender, moving him out of position. All someone had to do was get their stick on the puck, and this would be a very different story.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's one of the most like anxious moments uh, when you're watching a hockey game and, and particularly a big game, a playoff game, what have you. Um, because, you know, it happens a lot uh, in overtime where, you know, everybody's gripping their stick a little bit tighter and the goalies are, you know, they're a little more rigid and and, you know the nerves are kicking up like that um you know it's it's almost immeasurable how many times that's happened where in a big playoff game in a Stanley Cup game uh there will be an overtime moment where you know an innocent little wrister from the point you know either takes a funky hop or just goes through the goalie and you know the puck is loose it's behind him for a second and just the Like you said, either it's that moment where nobody knows where the puck is or it's just that mad scramble where, you know, the defense is willing to basically, uh, you know, lay down their lives to save the puck from going in uh, while, uh, you know, everybody and their mom is is diving towards the puck. So, um, you know, that's one of those really just special sports moments where, you know, It makes you feel such a way where, you know, you can never match that, where it's just like absolute panic. And, you know, you'll have that moments in other sports like that, but in hockey, just because the play is so open, um, really, compared to the other three major sports, uh, you know, you can kind of put basketball in a way, but, you know, you really can't at the same time. Uh, just because the scoring is, is so often, I guess you could say. Um, you know, it, 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 it's that moment where it's like that loose puck, and everybody on the ice is panicking, and everybody in the stands is screaming, and everybody at home is screaming, and the announcers who are calling the game are screaming. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's really one of my favorite moments in sports. Uh, um, it really doesn't get enough love. Uh, you know, in the regular season, it's innocent enough, but uh, you know that is uh, that is heart attack inducing for a lot of people, especially in the playoffs.
0: I think in our lifetime, although it doesn't involve New York teams, actually it involves the way way West Coast. I think the weirdest instance of that, I believe, it was 2010, the Vancouver Canucks versus the San Jose Sharks in triple overtime. Do you remember what I'm talking about when I bring this up? Oh, man. Uh, was That that was uh, where the puck flies in the air. Kevin BX is the only guy yeah, on the Kevin ice B. to see Anderson.
1: it. Right. And that was, uh, you know, that was his, uh, his claim to fame there. And, um, yeah, you know, you really thought that the Canucks were, like, kind of a team of destiny there um, because it was, again, it was something so innocent where – you know, the puck just kind of goes off the end boards up top and you know, BX, who we know is a blue liner. He's not a goal scorer, just kind of comes out of nowhere. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the weirdest thing. Uh, you know, sometimes when, when stuff like that happens, it's like you're a team of destiny. And uh, I certainly thought that year that the Canucks were it. and You know, they ran into a buzzsaw that was the Bruins, but Um, you know, that, that was a heck of a run
0: between that and the round before that talking about the Canucks 2010 Stanley cup final run, which I remember not having anything really invested in that playoff series besides wanting to watch good games. You're right. Something really sucked you in about the Canucks season. And I think that started with Alex Burrows picking off the Blackhawks front of the net pass, which is a cardinal sin in hockey, just firing one away. You know, I remember Jim Houston on Hockey Night Canada. It is a good day for an exorcism or something like that. Like that was such, that was a powerful moment. And the way that it, it just kind of kept going series by series, like there was almost like this gifting of an opportunity that in sports, particularly hockey, because like what you're saying in basketball, it's so different in overtime. Hockey, the first one to score in overtime wins. In basketball, it's often the last to score in overtime. Not that it's not exciting. It's just a very different dynamic. But in hockey, oh man, I think overtime hockey is, overtime playoff hockey is the most Exciting postseason event in all major sports.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that is a a hill I will die on until kingdom come. Um, you know, we really don't see overtime in Super Bowls. We've seen it once, and the one time it happened, it was uh, they called single the touchdown drive, yeah. when. Yeah, you know, they they called the touchdown when James White didn't even really score; his knee was down before the ball was in the end zone. Uh, you know, basketball. Yeah, you know what, it's special, but again, um it's not that it's not that sudden death. Um and you know, in baseball we've had that. Uh you know, we've had a couple of home runs to end World Series, whether it's Bill Mazeroski, whether it's Joe Carter, Touch whether it's Louis, yeah, whether it's Louis Gonzalez's single, um you know, but a an overtime goal that the finality of that moment um, it's, it's just such an exhilarating factor in sports and, and, and just to kind of bring it all full circle, Alex, who was the goalie of that Vancouver Canucks team?
0: Who was the go Oh, I know this one. <laughs> that would be Roberto Luongo.
1: And scene. There we go. We somehow got it back to the beginning Talking about Roberto Luongo. Now, Joe,
0: uh, I'm going to give you another one about that 2020, 2010, pardon me, hockey season and the Stanley Cup champion Boston Bruins. Who was the captain of that team? Oh, dear. Yep.
1: Well, that was uh, the big Zidane Chara, who the Islanders traded to the Ottawa Senators for Alexi Yashin, um, and I mean, along with Chara. They also sent a draft pick that would become Jason Spezza, who carved out a wonderful twenty-year career. Um, Again, you know, Yashin had some nice years with the Islanders, but you ask anybody, I think they would take uh, a couple of decades of Zdeno Chara anchoring the blue line. So, yes, uh, another blunder by Mike by uh, Mike Milbury.
0: It's almost artistic, in a way.
1: I feel like you have to try to be that bad. Like, you have to make an effort to really, like, Mike Milbury was the guy, he traded Zidane Chara. he traded Roberto Luongo, he traded the draft pick that became Jason Spezza, he traded Brian McCabe, Mm -hmm. Brian Berard, Todd Bertuzzi, Zygmunt Palfy. These are, these were good, serviceable, sometimes all-star players. And then Islanders fans are wondering, well, why are we so bad? Well, you know, the answer's up in the GM's box.
0: I think uh, I still think that the highlight of Mike Milbury's career was when he threw a shoe. Oh a yeah! Fan.
1: Oh yeah! When he was a player, uh, I think it was Madison Square Garden.
0: Yes, the Bruins uh, yeah, invaded
1: to the crowd. And, yeah, beat a fan with his own shoe. Uh, so I guess that's uh, Mike Milbury's number one claim to fame. Uh, I really don't know. You know. When my time does come to leave this planet, you know, if I was kind of faced with that conundrum, uh, that ultimatum, like, what would you want to be remembered as? (laughs) Would you want to be remembered as the guy that went into the crowd and beat a fan up with his shoe? Or do you want to be the guy remembered for trading away uh, two future Hall of Famers, uh, gutting the core of a really bad team that had some promise in it? uh and basically setting back a franchise for twenty years. Uh I really don't know what I would be want to be remembered by, but uh that's gonna be his claim to fame regardless. So uh, you know, I, I would say I feel bad for Mike Milbury, but at the same time I I really don't.
0: <laughs> you know <laughs> I'm I'm pretty convinced that the line in Happy Gilmore when Happy explains that he held two league records, still to this day most time spent in the penalty box. He was the only guy to take off his skate and try to stab somebody. I think that that is loosely based on Milbury and a few other of his colleagues on the Boston Bruins climbing the glass and storming the stands of Madison Square Garden. Could you imagine that happening today? No. No.
1: Nope, I couldn't. And, you know, we saw it back in, uh, what was it, 2003 or 2004. With Ty Domi? Um, well, uh, Ty Domi had his little thing, but uh, in basketball, uh, the Ron Artest saga, the malice at the Palace in Detroit against the Pistons, oh. when uh, he and Steven Jackson went into the stands. Um, that was, it was horrifying. Um, and I, I I certainly would never, ever want to see that happen ever again but at the same time you hear some fans talk and like you know we've talked about this multiple times we have spent a lot of time on twitter there are a lot of stupid people on twitter uh and there are a lot of people that say some pretty horrible things and they direct that towards athletes so at the same time if there was ever an opportunity where one of those i guess we'll call them twitter trolls uh is able to be confronted by the guy that they went after online. Uh Yeah, I would see money to see them laid out. And I'm not condoning violence. I don't want to be that guy right now. Um But I think that would be extremely satisfying for a lot of people. And uh hopefully you agree with me there, or else I am the bad guy.
0: No, you're not the bad guy. And, you know, even if it's not a, a physical punch, like at the malice at the palace or a shoe literally thrown at you, <laughs> you know, there are there are ways to kind of quiet down the fools where they retreat with their tail between their legs and rightfully so, you know, and even uh, to go back to our example of Taveras, you know, Islanders fans were a little hard on the guy. They, they took it too far. And again, I understand that maybe your thoughts towards him don't have to be overwhelmingly good or amicable, but at some point, Leave the guy alone. You can razz him. You can say, the year you were traded, we thought we were going through a rebuild. Turns out the Islanders had a more successful season than uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs did. Those are facts. That's not, that's in good taste. That's razzing a guy from left, and, for leaving rather, and just saying, hey, could have stuck with us. We beat the Penguins. You didn't. That is, that's where you draw the line. Right. That's within good taste of of giving him a little raz, a little bit of something. You know, anything past that, like I don't know the the pajama boy stuff. To me, it was like, I let it go. He grew up in Canada. Yeah. He he grew up a Yan- oh almost said Yankees fan. Um, <laughs> he he grew up a Maple Leafs fan. A Rod grew up a Mets fan. No one really brings that up and holds that against him. And now he's shown by the team.
1: You know, you you try to put yourself in the guy's situation where, you know, obviously you're given the opportunity to play for your hometown team and very shortly after he became the captain of them. um, You know, number one, why wouldn't you want to share that picture? Um, You know, that's incredible. It's a great story. Um, And I think if a lot of us were confronted in that situation, uh, I think we would also take the same path. Why wouldn't you want to go home? Um, and I think that picture was, uh, you know, I, I, I thought it was sweet. Um, and, uh, you know what? I might get flack for that. Um, but at the same time, you know, how many of us as kids have photos of us wearing, you know, Islanders or Rangers or Mets or Yankees or Jets or Giants or Knicks or Nets gear? You know, how awesome is that? Uh, you know, if, uh, I had the, you know, if I put in the work and, Uh, you know grinded all my life and became a professional athlete and you know i made the major leagues as a first baseman and i was drafted by the oakland athletics and you know say i was a free agent and you know my childhood team came knocking at my door offering me a contract uh why wouldn't i want to take that
0: something tells me you've Uh, thought about this what happened said something tells me you've thought about this
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, when I was a kid, like, I had my whole setup. Like, I thought I was going to be drafted by, like, the Cincinnati Reds. You know, I thought I'd stay there for a couple of years because, like, you know, it couldn't be that perfect of a Cinderella story where you get drafted by the Mets, right? (laughs) So, you know, I pay my due in Cincinnati, have a couple of down seasons, and then I come back and I'm the savior of the Mets. I'm like the next John Olerud who, you know, back then, he had a couple of great seasons with the Mets uh, before he moved on to, You know move out west and be closer to his family and you cannot blame the guy so you know going home isn't a bad thing it just uh you know the way it happened wasn't really in the best context and it didn't come out looking the best way but uh you know don't don't threaten the guy don't threaten the guy's family you know for wanting to go home so it is what it is and uh you know Toronto, unfortunately, is a toxic enough fan base where they're already getting sick and tired of him as captain uh, because they're not, uh, you know, meeting all those expectations yet. So uh, sometimes let karma do its thing. Uh, Stay away from the keyboard warriors and, and, uh, you know, read a book.
0: That's good. That's good advice. Read a book. For those that don't know, a book is one of those pages with words printed on them you know, for those out there recommend. that, yeah, for yeah, those that, think, you, yeah, some people think you can only do it on Twitter, but no, can actually learn about life. It's pretty fascinating.
1: And there's no harmful blue light that's going to damage your retinas.
0: That's, that's very true too. Mm. As far as sports books go, what are some, uh, what are some of your top picks?
1: Um, well, like I said, I kind of grew up as a pseudo Brooklyn Dodgers historian. Um, uh, So there was a book called uh, Bums um, by Roger Kahn. That was like my favorite go-to book. Um, I Never Had It Made, which was the Jackie Robinson autobiography. Uh, That was another favorite of mine. Uh, um, Let's see. What else was there? Um, There was a very good book that I just read. It's called K, which is – Uh, Basically documenting the history of pitching through the development of 10 pitches over the history of the game. Uh, That was really good. Uh, I guess those would be my top three. Uh, There is a book that just came out. Um, I think it's called something like We Want Fish Sticks. uh, That was kind of chronicling the mid-90s Islanders and their fall from grace. Uh, That was one I wanted to read, and there was another one, I have to give it a shout-out, that was written by a Hostra alum and a good friend of mine, Jerry Beach. Jerry Beach! Uh, um, Yep, chronically am the series. That's right, kind of going into the 2000 World Series. Um, I have yet to purchase it. Jerry, if you're listening, I will get on that as soon as I can and give it a read. I'm very excited to read it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, read some books kids, it's fun, I promise.
0: Two uh two quick picks that I want to add to this both in the genre of baseball. They're on the lighter side, the more fun side, but that's what baseball is supposed to be. First, uh The Science of Hitting by Ted Williams. I think that all baseball players should read that.
1: Yeah. Uh you know, he is in my opinion the greatest pure natural hitter uh, in baseball history. Um, and, and yeah, definitely why not get into his mind a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, that book becomes more and more valuable, uh, you know, as the years pass, you know, since he's gone and everything. So, um, that's a, a great, a great pick. And and now that you mentioned it, I'm probably going to have to, to read that again. So thanks for that. Adding more to my reading list.
0: (laughs) Well, I have one more for you and, it was written by my favorite baseball player of all time and it is called The Yogi Book. I really didn't say everything I said and more than just being a biography about his life, it really delves in to the yogiisms, the expressions of Yogi Berra.
1: Yeah, I actually never got around to reading that. Um but considering he's probably one of the most colorful characters in baseball history. I mean, it can't be a bad read. So, uh, yeah, I guess I'm going to have to check that one out too.
0: Just the way that he would say things. One time he was at a pizza place and the the guy making his pizza asked him if he wanted I think it was either 4 or 8 slices in a whole pie. And he goes, "4, I don't think I could eat 8." As if the way it was being cut would modify the volume of the pizza. <laughs> You know, the the famous oh, one, it ain't over till it's over. There's so much about Yogi Berra, and I really think that that man embodies the spirit of baseball. And what I particularly enjoy about him and why I've always looked up to him, why he's not just my favorite catcher, but my favorite player of all time, is that he really set the precedent. You can win, and you can have a ton of fun doing it. He is easily one of the winningest players, managers in all of baseball. Of course, he's more known for his playing career than when he managed the Mets, but still he took them to the 1973 World Series. That's nothing to scoff at, which shows that he was an intellectual. If you can manage, you are an intellectual. You are playing probably the most intense moving pieces game of chess ever if you can succeed managing in the big leagues. And Yogi just reminded us, you can be smart, you can be determined, you can win, you can have fun, and you can make people laugh. You don't have to pick between the two, and you can be nice while you do it. And that's what I admire about him.
1: Yep, it's, an, it's important, and I think for everybody in every walk of life, uh, don't take yourself too seriously and uh that's what yogi kind of helped prove to us and uh obviously we only kind of got to experience him later in his life um but again the stories are numerous and um you know it's easy to see why he can be a role model as to uh to so many and uh you know especially for guys like us in this business uh you know it's a perfect guy to look at because uh you know at the end of the day we're we're all just Regular old people, uh, you know, and it, the only thing that really differs is, is the jobs that we do and, you know, how we can kind of live our lives and treat other people. Um, and, you know, he's, you know, Yogi's the embodiment of everything that's good about that concept and about that ideology. So, uh, you know, kids try to be like Yogi a little bit.
0: You know, more than kids, I think that the career, the the way that Yogi Berra conducted himself I think that that is more to parents that attempt to live vicariously through their kids and almost bully them or pressure them, not into playing sports, but into the intensity and you have to do this training at age 12, you can't do this because it could ruin your life at age 13, you know, I'm no parenting expert, but I think lightening up Letting your kid enjoy the sport, not worrying about what team they're playing for as a 12-year-old. And I've interviewed professional trainers that have verified this. This isn't me just rambling and editorializing. Just have them work hard and have fun. And that's what Yogi Berra did. That's what one of the most successful personas in baseball did. You don't have to be so microcosmic with how you go about things. It's simple. You can't hit and think at the same time.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I think we've all had our run-ins with those kind of nightmare sporting parents. Um, And, you know, more often than not, it kind of drives the kid away from that passion. And, you know, it doesn't doesn't even have to be sports. Uh, You know, it could be music or the arts or... Uh you know, even just kind of breeding somebody you know taking over the family business uh you know so it's uh yeah it's important to kind of remember that the overarching thing to take away from whatever you do is to you know find something that you enjoy doing and and make sure you have fun doing it, and uh a lot of responsibility on the parent's shoulders to ensure that that experience can be attained. Um, and it's unfortunate that a lot of them don't, it's, you know, we, you know, we've seen videos of, you know, parents, you know, screaming and getting into fistfights at a little league game. I mean, what does it do? Your kid's 12. What, you know, what, what does that achieve? It, it scars your kid. It makes you look like a fool. Uh, and it just kind of builds the reputation that, uh, you know, we're talking about now. Uh, So nobody wins there. Have fun. Enjoy. Enjoy life. Take a second. Take a step back. Breathe. You're here. Be happy. That's as as existential I'm going to get. I'm a simple sports writer. I I lack the mental brevity to go much further.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but point taken, Joe, when we first planned on doing this show, as always, we said, let's try to keep it to 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh yeah i think uh, i think we kind of failed miserably but uh hey you know i i had fun doing it
0: i did too and i'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy not just what we're talking about of course we raise good points as the intellectual journalists that we are that are versed in sports <laughs> spongebob and star wars
1: you give me too much credit
0: Ah, you're doing a great job (laughs) Joe thank you for coming on we're going to do this again soon and a point that you brought up briefly about Toronto Maple Leafs fans makes me want to delve in on our next show to the most insufferable fan bases worldwide
1: oh you know I can't wait for that
0: I I think I have a feeling of what you're going to start off with but we'll save it
1: (laughs) that's good Yeah, save it for a rainy day (laughs)
0: Joe, thank you. Take care. I'm going to read some of the stuff you mentioned and check out some yogiisms when you get a chance.
1: I will. Thank you again so much for having me. Can't wait to do it again soon.
0: Absolutely. And that was AM Rush Sports. Remember, be nice on Twitter. Have fun. We miss sports just as much as you. Make the best out of the Belmont Stakes and watch some classic games. Certainly is fun. I'm Alex Mitchell. This is AM Rush. Don't forget, wash your hands.